0: We're going to be talking about the family of God. It's such a privilege to be able to do this here with you today. We good, good. And I got to get there as well. A little bit harder transition this morning going from those announcements to this, but family of God, Lord, we invite you into this place and your word to speak to us in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So I am just absolutely thrilled this morning, to get to talk to you uh, about this passage and about what Jesus is doing here, um, including many people, even those who worship the Denver Nuggets <laughs> after beating the Blazers, <laughs> into the family of God. And we're gonna see that this morning uh, through three separate stories. And what I like about what Matthew does this morning is I actually uh, really love a good setup. And the reality is, is I'm not very good at setups. And that's probably why I like them so much. When I hear a really good storyteller, or if I open a novel, or the first five minutes of anything we turn on TV, I can tell you real quick whether or not we're going to be sucked in and engaged, willing to spend the next hour, hour and a half listening, reading, watching what's being put before me. Or if we're simply going to turn it off and go do something different. Now, when we think of a good setup, one of the things that we tend to like or be engaged by is a lot of action and something happening right off the bat or mystery from the very onset of what's being shared. If you apply this to what's going on in the Gospels, that would be a lot like what's going on in Mark. Mark chapter 1. Jesus is on the scene. John is baptizing, and there's not a lot of background information. However, Matthew, uh, he is a bit of what we'd call a Bible nerd. He doesn't just jump right in with the action. He doesn't jump right to the things that Jesus is doing and the excitement around him. Maybe it's because he's a tax collector and he has an analytical brain and he wants to cross his T's and dot his I's and make sure that everything is perfectly laid out. What he does is he opens up his gospel by starting with the thing you always skip in your Bible reading. A genealogy. A bunch of names that to us it's equating it to being invited over to somebody's house for dinner, and they decide to show you slides of their latest trip to Cancun. And you're like, that was fun for about five minutes, but an hour later, I'm pretty sick of seeing you on the beach while it's snowing here, right? Like, come on, man. This is not enjoyable. And we see this genealogy, and we've done some work on this genealogy around Advent and Christmas time. There's some things, though, that I want to draw from it. So while you have your Bible open to Matthew 15, I want you to flip all the way back to Matthew chapter 1. We're just going to read one verse out of there this morning. It says in verse 1, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it's going backwards now, The son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, what Matthew is doing is he's giving us a setup for some important names and figures that are going to appear throughout his gospel. One person that he excludes in this is somebody that we've talked about uh, predominantly so far in our text, and that is that of Moses. And we've talked about how Jesus is the better than Moses. He is the true redeemer, the true deliverer, the one who fulfills those shoes, that role for the hope of the world. And we've looked at that comparison, and we're not going to delve into that at all this morning. But he focuses in this passage on both Abraham and David. And what does he say? The son. Not a son, like we sing, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had five. And then you get all the kids hitting and kicking each other. It's a really fun one. No, 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 no. He says he is the son of Abraham the son of David, the promised one. Paul, when reflecting on this text in Galatians wrote, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Father Abraham had many sons, but in one sense, he only had one son. And so what we're going to do is we're going to move from looking at Matthew in terms in light of this new exodus and this movement of redemption, that of which Moses kind of portrays in the Old Testament. We're going to delve a little bit into the Davidic idea of David's kingdom and Jesus fulfilling that kingdom role and the kingdom hopes of Israel as this woman's going to cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. And then we're going to talk about person who gets a little bit less airtime in the Gospels. In fact, when Abraham is typically mentioned, at least in the stories that come to my mind immediately, it's, oh, you call yourselves sons of Abraham? You think that because of your nationality, you are close with God? Now, there's a nuance there that we need to pick up on because as Jesus talks about that and says to them, you think you're sons of Abraham, therefore you're just close with the father. What he is acknowledging is this familial relationship, this family relationship, when the name of Abraham is brought up. There's this undertone all throughout Matthew, this idea that Jesus is fulfilling what Abraham was set out in Genesis chapter 12 when he was called out of Ur, and he was called from that place and that city and his family, and that there's going to be this massive family that comes from him. Jesus is the new Abraham, and this is speaking of the family of God. And really quickly, we're going to look at a little bit of Abraham and his story. They're in Genesis 12, you don't have to turn there, but we're told he's to go from his country, He's to go from his people, and he's to go from his father's house. those three things. Now you can think about Jesus, left his heavenly abode, left the heavenly house, left the father's house. Abraham was to go to a land. Of foreigners, of strangers, of possible enemies and threats and people who would reject him and want to harm him. And he was promised that he would be a great blessing, a great nation, a great name, and he will be a blessing. You see, for Abraham, the leaving of his family leads this Double familia of blessing, as Patrick Schreiner calls it. This idea that in Abraham and then through Jesus, the family of God is actually going to expand. And if you know the story of God, if you've been with us, we've talked a little bit about this, how God creates Adam and humanity. And there's this idea that man and God are to dwell in unity and relationship with another. In this garden scene, heaven kisses earth and there is peace and shalom and joy. And yet man says, I want to do things on my terms, my way. And it ushers in this breaking point, this thing that we call sin that happened between us and God and brought separation. And God is trying to work with the whole of humanity there in Genesis 1 through 12, excuse me, 1 through 6, the flood narrative. And then God begins to move through, ultimately, the family of Abraham. It's wide, it's small. Then to Jesus and back to humanity, the largeness of it, once again. And he's inviting people in to the family of God. So from narrowing to widening, telling us all that because of Abraham, we will be blessed because through the seed of Abraham, there's going to come this Messiah. Through rejection, it's going to lead to a new family being established. And these universal families will be blessed through this particular family, which is Abraham. So how does that play out in our story this morning? Hope you're wondering it. Glad you asked. Let's read this. It says in verse 21 of Matthew 15, Jesus went away from there. If you're here when Carson taught, he left the Pharisees and those conversations he was having with them and withdrew to the district of Tyree and Sidon. Now, this was not a Jewish place that Jesus went to go hang out in. He had left the Jewish territories. He'd already fed the 5,000 in Galilee, which was a primarily Jewish audience. He had this conversation with the Pharisees and now he's intentionally going into a territory that is filled with what would be historically Israel's enemies. People they did not want to associate with. People they thought, you're unclean. I can't break bread with you. I'm not to have conversations with you. We shouldn't do business with each other. We don't worship together. We don't rub elbows together. But Jesus says, I'm going to this region And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. Notice the disciples response. This Canaanite outsider, marginalized woman with a daughter who is demon possessed comes to the feet of Jesus. And the disciples say, we don't want anything to do with her. Cast her out from us. Well, Jesus says this. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Is he going to agree with them? But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. We're going to continue to read the next two stories, but we're going to spend our primary amount of time on this one. But let me continue to read. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. Now listen, And they glorified the God of Israel. Specific, the way Matthew is writing, they glorified the God of Israel. It's intentional, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? They have already witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. You think they don't know what Jesus can do? This is more like a Jonah response. I know you will forgive them. I know you can feed them. We don't want you to do that because they're not like us. See, And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? He said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds. They ate and were satisfied. They took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were four thousand men, besides women and children. And after sending them away, the crowds he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. It sounds like Morador. All right, some fun stuff there. So we're gonna rock these stories out, and we're gonna talk about how they all relate to one another. But there's this big picture of the family of God that yes, even Denver Nugget fans can join us after knocking out the Blazers, getting Terry Stotts fired, and blowing up my team. So. Love you, Dave. We've been going back on this for about eight years, nine years now. So it's cool. He's good. He's good. We don't have to escort him today. So this story, these three stories are all communicating one primary message. Matthew 15 is a huge turning point. Jesus has gone to the Jews. We've had the Sermon on the Mount. He's been in the Galilean region. He's been sharing with his people. And we've seen their rejection of Jesus. In fact, they would rather have traditions and commandments, and they would rather do the law in the way that they perceive they should. They would rather have the Messiah in the terms and on the terms that they desire than what Jesus is presenting to them. And in so doing, Jesus is now showing us that he's going out from the Jews, as this story explicitly says with the Canaanite woman, and he's bringing the good news of who he is and inviting others into the kingdom of God, the family of God. This chapter with this Canaanite woman, the healing of a largely Gentile group, as well as feeding this largely Gentile crowd, tells us the kingdom of God looks vastly different than what modern day is, or excuse me, historic Israelites had anticipated or thought it would actually look like. And so what Jesus is criticizing are the very ways in which many of the Jews thought they were close to God. In fact, he is almost pulling these lines out of, say, like Jeremiah chapter 6. As you heard Carson preach last week, and actually I'll start with, yeah, I'll go to Jeremiah 6. I've got tons of these here this morning. Jeremiah 6 verse 20, it says this. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba, our sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Isaiah 1 verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifice, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. And your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correction, oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. What Jesus is doing is he's tagging on to these ideas that were talked about in the prophets that Israel had essentially come to a place in which they would show up to synagogue on a Saturday, say a few prayers, follow some rituals and rules, and because of that, they felt they were close and tight with God. It's what a lot of modern day Western evangelicalism looks like. Monday through Saturday, We're going to live and act and talk and be like however we please, whatever will profit me and get me ahead in this life. There's some boxes I should check along the way. Come Sunday, we're going to be like Israel. We're going to lift our hands and we're going to sing songs and we're going to go through the motions. And God is saying in Matthew 15, those first 22 verses, I despise and hate that. You think that's what makes you clean. It is not that which makes you clean. No, no, it's not about these outward acts and appearances and passages of moving through these motions. In fact, it's something far different. It's a work that's going to have to take place in your heart. And because of this, the Jews viewed the Gentiles as this unclean group of people. And so when Jesus moves from Matthew 15, 1 through 21 to Gentile territory and begins to speak to this Canaanite woman, there was this jaw-dropping moment that happened for his disciples that were all around him. Why? The Canaanites were nemesis of Israel. They were in the promised land before Israel crossed the Jordan and made their way there. They had history with Israel But it's intriguing if you do some studying, you find out that there's actually a Canaanite. Her name is Rahab. She was a harlot, a prostitute, maybe running the prostitute house for all the soldiers that would come to Jericho. And she then marries into Israel and is actually involved in the lineage of Jesus, something that many of them would have wanted to forget, neglect, not even look at. And in his intentionality, Jesus is breaking down walls, and he's breaking down barriers. And it's a prophetic word for us. This is something that we need to have our antennas up on and listen to very well in our cultural moment. Because what Jesus is calling us to as the family of God is far bigger than the divides that have happened and are happening and may continue to happen in our culture. And what we need to be aware of and understand is that as we say yes to Jesus, we are people coming under his rule, his reign, and that determines how we act, respond, behave, not only in this place, but in the world outside of us. Jesus going and leaving Jewish territory for Gentile territory was a big statement in that day. So what's happening? Well, this woman comes to Jesus And she begins to cry out this messianic title, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. What does that mean? Well, God had made covenants and you can read about these covenants. You can see this Noahic covenant. You can see the Abrahamic covenant and there's the Davidic covenant. And in the Davidic covenant, it's a recognition that God is going to establish a throne through David that's going to last forever and ever. And when this woman comes to Jesus and she cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. What she's doing is as an outsider, she's recognizing Jesus as the one who is going to sit on the throne of David forever. This is a highly politically driven statement by this woman, because at that time in that culture, Caesar was Lord. Caesar sat on the throne. Caesar was in charge. And to suggest anything different would begin to cause anarchy or chaos or to assert somebody as higher than Caesar could get you killed. But this woman, this outsider, she's acknowledging something that only very few have at that point. The disciples had some private conversations Previous to that, some of the crowds, as Michael and I taught on for about three weeks, this was two months ago, talked about, could he be, is he the son of God? Is he the one? It was sort of beginning to bubble up. And this woman makes this very bold statement, theological statement. And she says, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Jesus's response If taken in just an isolated text is downright offensive. You'll get canceled for saying the things that he just said. He looks at her and he says, I'm here for the kids. Should I feed the dogs? Did Jesus just call her a dog? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Why didn't she get upset? what's her reaction? What's her response? You see, she picks up on the metaphor that Jesus is giving to her. You need to understand this. You also need to read this and say, this is not something that's shocking or in the negative sense, but it's something that should cause some mystery and for you to go, what does he mean by this? What is Jesus actually saying? So let me just give you a picture. Um, Some of you in the last year, uh, you've been over for dinner. Um, We have this beast. His name is Diesel. He's a Great Dane. He's huge. Uh, He's so huge, he puts his chin on our counters. He almost weighs as much as me now. And I'm, yeah, anyways. So he's, he's there, okay? Big dog. We have to put him in his kennel when people come over. Nobody would like, nobody would like, if when they came over to our house for dinner, we invited Diesel to the table with us. And he put his chin on the table because like I've seen that dog eat his own poop and he steps in it and it's not small, I promise. And it's gross and he's unclean. Now Jesus is using a metaphor here. He says, hey, you want some bread? No, 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 no. I came for Israel first, but she's going to be persistent, Because she understands what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're unclean. And she says, yes, but even the little kids, and this is true, my kids, they feed the dog under the table, right? They get some of the crumbs. Now, even more interesting in all of this is this narrative about food and bread and the table is sandwiched between two other food narratives. Getting hungry yet? Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And if you read in John's gospel, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 afterwards, they try to make him king. And he says, no, it's not my time yet. In fact, you only want me to be king because I fed you. It's not because you want what I actually came here to give you. That's not why you want me. You want for what I can provide. But you, if you truly want to follow me, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Oh, that's offensive, Jesus. And they left, but the disciples. Then in this narrative that we just read this morning, how this story ends, Jesus feeds the 4,000. And these are Gentiles. And he too is then giving them bread. Bread. He's offering them something of substance, but this is incredibly symbolic. For Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God that proceeds from his mouth. Jesus himself declares, I am the bread of life. This is so rich in symbolism for us this morning, because this woman, she comes to him, she's talking about healings, and Jesus takes it to this metaphor. And he says, should you get some of the bread? Do you want life? And she says, oh, I get that you're here for Israel, but even the kids feed the dogs and they get the leftovers of the bread of life. And she's persistent at the feet of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Your faith, your faith, your faith. She acknowledges that he is who he says he is. And that he can do what he said he would do. And there her daughter is healed. Because she takes, symbolically if you want, metaphorically, of the bread that he is the bread of life. Isn't Matthew incredible? Aren't nerds awesome? The way they can write, and if you're like, Brett, you might be one of them. No, I just read one of them, okay? So that's where I got this from. This is so incredible when you begin to piece these thoughts and these ideas together. That this woman who's a Gentile, who she is unclean, according to Matthew 15, 1 through 21, what the Pharisees said, she is unclean, not to be associated with, not to be anywhere near Jesus, the Jews, his disciples. She isn't washed properly. And he's saying, your faith, you are made clean. Now, Jesus, when he looks at the Gentiles, they are not undefiled because they are Gentiles. They have the exact same sin problem that all people have. And we get to eat of the scraps and partake of what Jesus is doing. All right, I would love to get into the next two texts, but I'll just sum it up real quick. As you finish out chapter 15 in Matthew, there's a large Gentile crowd. They're healed and they praise the God of Israel. That clues you into the fact that Jesus is now healing non-Israelites. He's being sent. He is going towards the Gentiles and including them in the kingdom of God. The feeding of the 4,000 is a mostly Gentile crowd. And once again, Jesus is doing for the Gentiles what he was doing for Israel and he's inviting and welcoming them in. And if you look at this, this gives us a great summary of in chapter 15, 1 through 20, the Jews have these food laws. They're now annulled. Jesus journeys up into Gentile territory and heals a Gentile girl. The crowds are now healed. The crowds are now fed. And these are not just neat stories to tell you Jesus is something special. We get it. We already know that about Jesus. It's talking about his kingdom and his mission and what's making us a family. So what do we do with this this morning? Because that's why y'all came here this morning. You're like, that's cool. I wanted to learn some nerdy stuff and maybe know the Bible a little better. But how how does this get to my life and creep into uh, what I am doing? For the last year, we've been using this language that we are a church church family that is committed to following the ways of Jesus, that is studying the scriptures like Jesus, praising and worshiping Jesus, and then going and doing the things that Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? I mean, because when I hear that statement, in fact, when Michael and I first started talking about that statement, I was like, do the things Jesus did? Like, can I see the fine print on that? Because Jesus did some crazy stuff, bro. Like he walked on water. Are we going to be that church? Are we going to go encourage that today? Are we going to get a little weird up in here sometimes? Is Is that what's going to happen? And there can be this misconception. And when we say those words of doing the things that Jesus did, and what we tend to lean into is the supernatural things that Jesus did. But there were some very natural and obvious things that Jesus did. First of all, Jesus was about bringing people into the kingdom. Didn't matter if they were Jewish and his people Centurion, or this Canaanite woman, or the weird demoniac. We were down in San Diego. Uh, actually, I, San Diego would hate that. We were down in Oceanside because they don't count that San Diego, right? <laughs> it's kind of like Portland and Gresham, okay? So you get the analogy there. So we were down in this area, and this guy was just screaming like a bird at everybody that walked by him. And my kids are like, what's his problem? like, don't talk to him. (laughs) We'll stay away from him. I don't think Jesus would have. See, Jesus was about these very practical things of going near to people that we would avoid it. Doing the things that Jesus did is taking our time, our talent, our treasure, and applying them in ways in our life, in this community, and in this church, one to another. Doing the things Jesus did means being priests one to another. Like I said, does that mean we're going to get all weird and it's going to be crazy up in here? Uh, No, not by any means. But as a church family, your leadership, we really desire that this church family would be priests one to another. That we'd be a family that actually prays with one another. There would be a family that knows what's going on in one another's lives because we talk to each other. There would be a church family that realizes this morning is not an event. Michael and I are not cool enough for it to be an event. I promise you that. We missed the smoke machines. We didn't learn about that in seminary or Bible college. No, no, no. This is actually a family of God that cares for one another, that it's more than a learning center, that this is deeper than a TED talk, that you don't just come here to learn something cute and neat from the Bible and pack it in your back pocket for the next Bible debate that you have with somebody that doesn't believe in Jesus. Okay, That's not what we're doing here. Yes, learning the scriptures is something that we should be doing, but it's not all of it. It's certainly not the... The smallest portion, absolutely we partake and we listen to the word of God and we grow because of it. But let me tell you this, if all you're here for is learning, go podcast Matt Chandler, Tim Mackey, Tim Keller, Kevin DeYoung, and I could give you so many great teachers, professors that you could learn from that are going to blow me out of the water. But the difference between us and them is I'm going to know your name and you're going to know each other's names. That we're going to care for each other. To go and do the things Jesus did, it might mean that you actually this Sunday turn to your neighbor and pray and the spirit manifests emotional healing, physical healing, mental healing. There are practical needs that need to be met and the spirit might tap you on the shoulder and say, I want you to go meet that personally. See, too often when we associate going and doing the things Jesus did, we just want to regulate it to some spiritual or supernatural work. But there are so many simple things that Jesus has called us to do. Jesus invested in people, Jesus forgave others, Jesus showed grace and mercy, and he turned the other cheek. He spoke the truth in love, he encouraged others, he had compassion on them, he fasted, he prayed and he knew the scriptures. And so for us this morning, what might this look like? Very practically, like we did last week, maybe we feed other people. That's doing the things Jesus did. Maybe we clothe somebody, as Jesus said, if you have two tunics, give your neighbor one. Or show hospitality or generosity, forgiving others, turning the other cheek. Maybe God does something through you in this body in prayer and seeing God heal somebody. But as a family and a family of God, we need to learn to step into this. Sometimes it might be a little uncomfortable or awkward, but let's get used to the awkwardness and the uncomfortableness. And let's move from just simply being a learning center to being a place that does the things Jesus does. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for including us, this group of what is probably 98% Gentile, (laughs) and adding us into your family, grafting us in, as Paul said. And thank you that you want to actually work and move through us, and you invite us into the mystery like 1 Corinthians talks about, of praying for one another, of seeing you work and move in this place. God, help us to be a family that engages one another, that doesn't want to just get smarter or learn things, but truly wants to do the things that you did. Work that in us, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, so here's what we're gonna do this morning, and just a bit of a challenge, and... You know, you're going to have some outs. It's really easy. You can just stare forward or open your Bible or the Bible in the seat in front of you. But what I would love to see this church do this morning as we continue to worship the Lord is turn to somebody in here. You'll know if they're going to participate in this because they're going to look at you too. And it might be the person you came with and just ask them, what, what can I pray for you for? What can I pray for you for? And then I want you to pray for them. It's really simple. And then I want you to do this. They might share a practical need, a physical need. Maybe you just turn to God and say, are you asking me to meet this or not, Lord? And have a real conversation with him. Because it's not coincidence that you're just sitting next to somebody. In fact, when I was in Israel, our tour guide said, God's, excuse me, coincidence is just God's way of being anonymous. Loved it. I was 13 and it stuck with me. All right, loved it. Maybe God would have you meet that need. Maybe God wouldn't have you meet that need. Maybe God would just have you continue to pray. Maybe you don't have the means to meet that need. But goodness, I would love to see us be a church that does more than drink mediocre coffee, Fred and Meyer donuts, laugh a little, cry a little, be moved a little, and then walk out of here and nothing changes. What if God wants to manifest something through us in prayer and moving into that? So so what we're going to do is we're going to sing and worship the Lord. There's communion up front. The tables are going to be open. There's going to be a lot going on around here. I can tell you that. There's an offering box to give to what God is doing. But I just want to give you a moment to turn to somebody. Simple. What can I pray for you for? Pray for them. Then go have a private conversation with God. Maybe this afternoon, maybe tomorrow. God, what do you want me to do with what that person shared with me? And let's walk in that as the family of God. Let's do that now.